The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is my pleasure today to welcome Mr. Eric Herm. He is a farmer, naturalist, and activist who was raised on a cotton farm near the small western Texas town of Ackerley. Like many children of farmers, he left the farm to pursue other interests, including a degree in broadcast journalism, and then he traveled extensively in America, Mexico, Europe, and Northern Africa. I became interested in Eric because he is the author of two books. The first book is really more about his experience on the farm and how commercialized agriculture Changed Our Natural Resources, Ecosystems, and the Farmer Himself. And that title of the first book is called Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth. The second book is titled Surviving Ourselves, The Evolution of Community, Education, and Agriculture in the 21st Century. And we're going to be talking about both of those books a little bit and also about Eric's very interesting life. So, Eric, welcome, and thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, thanks for having me, Melinda. Eric, there's so much in both of your books and also online about you and different interviews. Our listeners can go back and get some more information. But I wonder if you could just start out by telling me how you think humans have come to disregard nature and our relationship with our environment. How did it happen? I think it was a gradual process. I think we've over the course of the 20th century and the whole industrial revolution and then modern technology here in the latter half and until now we've become less involved in nature. We've segregated ourselves from nature more or less where we're either in a house or we're in a building, we're in a schoolroom, classroom type of environment and there is no nature around us. We're either in a cubicle or we're in an office and most people lives, especially if you live in the big city, uh, you're walking on pavement and concrete, you might see a tree here and there if you're lucky, but you got to go to the park if you're going to be a part of nature. And even people that live out in the country, you know, we where we've been taught in agriculture now that poison is the key to everything, as opposed to our relationship with nature and learning from different aspects of nature, everything from insects to weeds to the weather, we just rely on chemical companies to tell us what the answers are. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a gradual process. I think it really started kicking in after World War II. Everybody kind of just had this mentality, let's make the most of everything. We made a lot of goods in this country, and the manufacturing took over. And as that dissipated, then technology took over. Well, I think it's really interesting to speak to a farmer about this, especially, you know, you're a fourth-generation farmer. Your family has been in cotton for all of these years. And It's very interesting to read about your experience and your perception of commercial agriculture. You define it as an old, broken system, but the propaganda machine, and the propaganda machine has these fingers that reach out into public schools and certainly our land-grant educational programs, 
but they have a very refined propaganda message that says, oh, no, commercial agriculture is modern agriculture. And you say what we really ought to be saying is rather than get big or get out, get real or get out. And I wonder how you came to that conclusion. Well, when I moved back in 2005, I had a lot of questions because I was kind of like, I brought like a child's eyes back to the farm even though I was 30 years old. I wanted to know why we did this because it seemed like we were using more chemicals than ever, but we had more insect issues, more weed issues than ever. So I had tons of questions and a lot of times people couldn't answer them. And I realized that there's a huge amount of knowledge that's missing here. And so I started trying to turn over stones and look in places where apparently we weren't looking in agriculture anymore and discovered a lot of books from different people like Philip Callahan, Charles Walters, all these people that were pioneers in whether it was organics or biodynamics or whatever that had studied nature and really learned from nature. And we weren't doing that in farming anymore. We were simply trying to annihilate whatever aspect of nature was speaking to us, whether it was bollworms or uh, whether it was the careless weed or whatever was our problem. We just wanted to get rid of it. And we didn't care if we were really treating the problem that was causing it. We just wanted cosmetically for that thing to vanish to make our lives easier. And when you discover by using chemicals, all you're doing is masking the problem. You're not getting rid of it. You're creating more long-term problems. And that's how my eyes began to open. And when I learned how insects function, that they see in infrared and ultraviolet energy, whereas we see invisible energy, and they're trying to take out the weak plants, and here we are just dumping chemicals and synthetic fertilizers on our fields, making these plants even weaker, and actually putting things ammonia-based fertilizers which attract moths to the fields. And you realize that these chemical companies are pretty smart, that they've created the perfect recipe that requires the farmer to buy more and more of their products over the years. Mm-hmm. And with those products comes illness. And I'm not sure the farming communities are, A, recognizing or connecting those dots between the chemicals that they're using and the illnesses that they face within their communities, or if they see it as just the price or the cost of doing business. What do you see in your own community and with the farmers that you socialize with? Well, you run into difference of philosophies. Like my dad's generation, my dad's 67. When he was a young man, he remembers that weeds took over everything. And so when the first chemicals that came out, which was like Treflan, an area with a yellow base, pre-emergent herbicide, it revolutionized farming out here. All of a sudden, they could get their crops up and going and not have to worry about the weeds at the very beginning of planting time. And so you had a whole generation of men with chemicals. They saw with their own eyes how it made life easier and it helped them. They didn't have to work like near as hard just to get that crop up and going. And when you're steeped in that type of philosophy, when you when you're in it from the get go, it's hard to believe that something like chemicals, which has made farming easier to do, is causing problems. And when you <laughs> sit there and go, Okay, but it's poison it's hard to get that message across sometimes. Because mm-hmm. some people justify, well it's just a little bit I'm spraying over the land and it dissipates, it's not that big a deal. 
And I wish I knew exactly why it was hard to get across to to other farmers, but no farmer wants to believe that what he is putting on the earth is causing harm. Mm-hmm. So you now are taking over the farm, essentially. Your dad is getting older, and you're the next generation to come on the farm, and you have chosen not to use genetically modified seeds or chemicals. How is that working for you? Well, it's been a battle. Oh, I've seen it from having 10 to 20 acres of herbicide drift damage on our crops. I've seen that increase to 100 acres. And then just a couple years ago, we had 250 acres of drift damage. And now this year, we had probably 2,000 acres. And it's getting more and more difficult to grow a healthy non-GMO crop in our area. It's getting more difficult to grow an organic crop in this area with not just the Roundup crops. We had the trial crops of the dicamba, which is Monsanto's latest and greatest genetically modified crop that's going to hit the market next year. Farmers will be able to get access to dicamba-based plants, which is equivalent to 2,4-D. It kills broadleaf plants, whether it's trees or grass or anything. I've seen damage in plants, scattered plants, in every single one of our fields this year. Every single farmer I talked to from Big Spring to Plainview, which is a 200-mile area north and south here in the lower plains of, of Texas, experienced the same type of damage. And that's just from a few trial plots. And this mm-hmm. stuff drifts 40 to 50 miles. It, it acts like a gas. It's much more volatile than Roundup. So it sounds like you're not going to have much of a choice. It doesn't seem that way. <laughs> I mean... A lot of guys are have gotten squeezed out. You know, they're not as adamant about this stand as as some of us. Uh, but when you're talking about it from a financial standpoint, sooner or later, you you make one of two decisions. You know, you either risk going under because of what's happening with all your neighbors, or you change gears completely. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be more diverse with our farming operations and get more into wheat and plants that are not broadleaf plants because I have to play defense of some sorts. Right. And I'm not going to I'm not going to spend the rest of my life planting Monsanto or Dow Chemical or bear crop seeds. I'm just I'm not going to do it. Right. Well, we could go in so many directions here about some of the effects of these crops and their associated herbicides, but I want to step back just one moment about the drift issue. Now, you've lost a lot of money then with that kind of contamination. Did you try to sue, or how did you get compensated for your losses? Well, it's impossible to get compensated after a while because the type of winds that we have here in West Texas, there was 25-mile-an-hour winds for a good chunk of the summer. There's no way to prove which person's herbicide <laughs> drifted onto your... It's almost like you're trying to track down the boogeyman yeah. at times. And a few years ago, I did file five different cases with the Texas Department of Agriculture because of drift issues. And that was a very frustrating process. It was long... A I pissed off a lot of my neighbors. They had to submit all their spray reports and a lot of their records to agents, um, go through all these interviews with state agents with the TDA. And I did all that, and they 
in each case they ruled that there was not enough drift evidence to support the case of drift except for one, and that was a local chemical company, and they got a $250 fine, and that's Mm. all that ever came of it. Hmm. So in terms of your relationships with your neighbors, this is one of the big issues, right? Because, and, and I think I just want to step back, too, and just say that cotton is a really interesting crop, and you mentioned this in your book and, and in some of your interviews, that it's not just the cloth that we wear. It's also part of the money that we spend. Uh, it's in cosmetics, and it's also in our food. So if you look at a lot of the vegetable oil labeling and you see it listed in the ingredients, you could see vegetable oil or you could even see cottonseed oil. That's coming from farmers like you. And so we as consumers have a role to play in supporting farmers who don't use chemicals, but it sounds to me like even our choices as consumers are becoming we're losing choices. You know, we have this illusion of choice. And you have this great list. You have many wonderful lists in your book. But one of them is the Young Farmers Ten Commandments. And you say, number 10 is, thou shalt not plant GMOs or depend upon billionaire corporations for thy needs. And that would be for seeds, I'm sure. And this is a really great piece of information to give out. And I certainly do the same thing when I talk to consumers and I say, you know, try as best you can, to use non-GMO products. But in reality, from the farmer's perspective, it doesn't seem like it's becoming a viable choice anymore. No, it's become, it's, it is tougher. I mean, I wish I could sit here and feel like that I'm, I've been winning all these battles because I've been very vocal and I've been very out there. Uh, but even with my dad, you know, he and I, we farm together, and we're we're having a parting of the ways because my dad is wanting to go with the Roundup Ready crops, and it it has caused an issue there, you know, between he and I. Like, we're, we've been business partners, and we just have this completely different philosophy now. And I see it from his eyes. I mean, he's in the last few years of, of doing this, and he's tired of fighting it, and the frightening aspect of going under in a year is very real in our line of work, especially when we've been in a major four-year drought and haven't had, we have not made, this will be the second time we've had any crop in over five years, and it's not much of one. And so when you put all that, all those different issues in front of a farmer, sooner or later they're just going to throw up their hands because there's too many battles to fight. But that's the problem when you got the majority doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's what frightens me with the the, the dicamba and the 2,4-D that's coming out here over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Now, next year is Monsanto's, and then after that, Dow Chemicals will be the 2,4-D right after that. Mm-hmm. So that's going to create, I mean, it's going to be a house of cards where, okay, if you guys start planting that, well, now they're hurting the Roundup guys. Well, the Roundup guys are going to go to that. Right. And because you also have this, the weeds that are coming in that glyphosate's not killing anymore because they become resistant to it. So I'm just like, what's next, guys? What what are we really going to move towards next when this doesn't work? Are we just going to go out there and nuke our fields just because we don't want to look at the weeds? I mean, sooner or later, we have to start looking at this in a broader aspect, not not just from our ability to survive financially, but our ability to survive physically, because we're just killing ourselves slowly out here. Yeah. And we've got 100,000 acres of, of Roundup being sprayed right here in my county alone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how healthy I try to keep my family. We're out here breeding this stuff. 
And this is going into our, like we talked before the interview starts, going into our rivers, our lakes. It's found in the rainwater, 0.48 parts per million in rainwater from Iowa down to Mississippi. I mean, sooner than later, we have to realize poison is not the answer. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Eric Herm. He is a farmer, naturalist, and activist, and he is an author as well. And he's been likened to Wendell Berry in that he's both a farmer and a poet. And his works are beautiful. He's the author of two books, Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. And the book we're talking about today, or that I have in front of me today that I just love, is called Surviving Ourselves. The Evolution of Community, Education, and Agriculture in the 21st Century. You know, Eric, as bleak as the picture is, and it is everything that you mentioned, you know, I, I, because I work in public health, I focus on agriculture and how we produce our food and our fiber and how that affects the future generation. You're right. You're raising your family in this area where now, in addition to having the Roundup, we're going to have 2,4-D and dicamba. And I live far, a little bit farther up the river in the Midwest, and I, too, look at my rivers and streams and think, gosh, is it really safe for children to be swimming and even accidentally swallowing the water on occasion? So I find your book to be really, though, quite uplifting, despite all that, because you do call on us to come together and have communities, and you give examples of communities where we have seen positive changes happening. The question is, is it too late? No, not at all. It's never too late in my eyes. I mean, nature, the earth is so resilient and will heal itself, but we have to allow it and give it time to. And where I am so optimistic is the fact that the rest of the public is becoming more aware of what's going on with food and fiber production in this country, and that's where it's going to get changed. When people refuse to buy stuff that has genetically modified crops, or, you know, crops that have been used with excessive use of, of herbicides and pesticides, that's when it's going to get changed. Because when people aren't buying the products, it doesn't matter what latest and greatest invention these biotech companies come up with. The farmer is not going to be able to sell the crops anymore. You're already seeing backlashes in Europe and China mm-hmm. where they're refusing uh, genetically modified wheat. You know, China's having a huge pushback here lately. And once that starts happening, I guarantee you that's going to hit our industry hard. It's going to hit these commodity crop industries very hard because that's who's buying up most most of the grain in this country, most of the cotton is China. And these other countries are starting to become take their stand. You've seen just recently Jackson County in Oregon that placed a ban on genetically modified crops. Right. There are more and more. Vermont getting in on it, getting their legislation passed. Counties, states, communities are taking this into their own hands, as it should be, because our federal government has failed us harshly in this area. Yeah. You have a lot of Native American passages in your book, and I know you've traveled widely globally. What kinds of lessons have you taken away from those travels and those experiences with indigenous cultures? It doesn't take a whole lot to be happy and survive and be efficient. I mean, really, when you get past the the shelter and the food and the water and love, I mean, everything else is really gravy. 
I think our culture has done a really good job of kind of forgetting that. And the indigenous cultures, that's what they were all about. It was never about taking more than what they needed. And it was all about the seven-generation plan was what they were doing. Was that going to help them survive for seven more generations or be good for the seventh generation on down the line? And we're not that way. I mean, we're microwave right now, $100 bill society. Mm-hmm. And we make a lot of stuff, we buy a lot of stuff, we use a lot of stuff, and we throw it away and we replace it with something else. And it's not, you know, sustainable has been the key word here, I guess, for the last two or three years. But, um, you know, really we just need to look at what we're doing, how that affects not only our local ecosystem, but how that affects our resources for future generations. Mm-hmm. You have great experience both as a farmer and outside the farming profession. So you've got a degree in broadcast journalism, and you recognize how the tobacco industry playbook, all the the wonderful ways that propaganda influences our buying habits and our choices and these illusions that we have of choice. How do you propose that we change the way Americans think about food and farming? Get them more involved. Get into the school system. Get these kids growing things where it's part of the curriculum. We have farm-to-table programs in this country. There's farm-to-cafeteria programs. Those need to be like mandatory in our school system. When kids get their hands dirty and they get seeds in their hand, they watch this grow and they take care of it themselves and they're eating that food, it's amazing what you can get a kid to try to eat when they grow it themselves, when they've had a hand in it in the garden. Yeah. I mean, no... Very few kids are going to eat broccoli or peas or whatever that you that doesn't have sugar and lots of salt on it that's you know processed. But when you when they see what happens with a seed, that miracle registers with them. But we have to get people more familiar with this. I think when you become an adult, you become scared because you don't want to look silly because you don't know what you're doing. Well, when you're a kid and you're young, you don't care. And I think the younger we can start reaching kids, the better. And I think that that's going to have a trickling down effect. The more youth we get involved with this, it will work its way up through the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I've seen the literature that there are lots of published articles now. It's been going on long enough that we do recognize the power of teaching children to grow their own food and recognizing that miracle of the seed. There's another message that's very prevalent, though, in our society, and that is that cheap is good. And we have to use these chemicals and these genetically modified seeds in order to have cheap food. So putting your broadcaster's hat on again and your journalist hat, how do you think we can overcome these tempting, tantalizing messages of that really feed our greed side in terms of you know wanting things that are cheap and abundant? Well, we want things cheap, but I, I haven't. I don't go into any houses where I don't see at least two flat-screen TVs, and everybody's got some sort of wireless device in their hands. And you know, it seems like we're we're much more willing to spend a bunch of money on entertaining ourselves, especially when it comes with really cool gadgets, than when it comes to maybe spending a little bit more money on food. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it just goes back to that getting involved with it early on in life. 
But, I mean, it's not going to be done overnight. I don't have any delusions about that. It's not something we're going to accomplish overnight. But we need people to realize that what we do eat, that is what we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've become a cheeseburger and fries supersized society because that's, hey, cheeseburger and fries, that's been the meal. That's in and out in two minutes, and you scarf it down between red lights, and you get back to what you were doing. And we don't enjoy food here anymore. Where you, As you go to someplace like Italy and Spain, where they, I mean, it is a production <laughs> there. Right. I mean, food is everything. And once we have a little bit more intimate relationship with our food, just the preparation of it, spending time in the kitchen, and that's almost become an ancient form of living, whereas grandmas and you think about who was preparing food for us a long time ago, but now I just think that we need to spend more time with our food, preparing it. I mean, the more love that goes into it, the better it's going to taste. I mean, I'm blessed. My girlfriend's one of the best cooks I've ever met in my life, and it's rare in our generation. And I think that the younger generation's food is just not something we deal with. Mm-hmm. We just go buy it. Right. Go get a 99-cent burrito. Get three tacos for 79 cents or something like that. It's just cheap and easy, but we should be able to separate a product from food. We shouldn't be viewing food as product. We shouldn't be viewing the crops we raise as product. We should be viewing it as life. We should be viewing it as energy. Mm-hmm. Eric, towards the back of your book, you write, Just as seeds need rain, words need action so that they may produce the needed outcome. We just have a couple of minutes left. Would you leave us with some action steps in addition to those that you've already given us in terms of getting to know our food and growing our food, developing more relationships with food and the people who grow it? What other actions would you like our listeners to take? Get involved in your community. I mean, if, it's a, if there's a local food co-op, if there's a farmer's market, if there's a CSA, whatever is around, it's just going down there and volunteering a few hours on the weekend. Ask questions. Get to know your farmers in your area, the farmer's markets. Get to know the people that's running your grocery stores. Ask them questions. Tell them your concerns. You'll be amazed what they'll be able to put on the shelves for you if they get enough people in there that are asking for it. Mm-hmm. I recommend people getting involved in gardening, farming at any level they can. If it's just a few plants in your window, just growing whatever food you enjoy. Just start out doing something, but get involved and get others involved around you because it is contagious. And the more people in your community that are doing this, the more prevalent it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being my guest, Eric. And I want to strongly recommend both of your books. The first, Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness, which really, it's not just a message for farmers, but humanity as a whole to embrace our role as flesh and bone guardian angels of the earth. And your second book, 
Surviving Ourselves, The Evolution of Community Education and Agriculture in the 21st Century by Dream River Press. And I want to also leave our listeners with the website for you and where they can learn more about your work. And that's simply www.sonofafarmer.com. And we'll link that with our link to our radio station. And then I also want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Eric, thank you again so much for carving out time for me. And good luck as you face the future in agriculture. Thank you. Yeah, there's going to be some poetry that's put to music. I've got a little album that'll be out on the website, so people should check that out. Wonderful. Will do. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you.